to start, you guys, I thought maybe just something to go off of what, Mike, you've been teaching recently. Uh, this person says, thank you, Mike, for your series on the atonement. I'm wondering about an application. Since Jesus died only for the elect, does this mean that when sharing the gospel, we shouldn't say to a person, God loves you or Jesus died for you, since we don't know whether the person is one of the elect? Yeah, so a very good question, one that gets asked a lot. I think that the answers to those are two different ones. I think that there's an expression of God's love that is you know, properly predicated to everyone in the world. God, we, a lot of times Reformed theology speaks of three aspects of God's love, his love of benevolence, that is the, the desire for good things, right? The love of beneficence, the fact that he is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And then the love of complacency, and the love of complacency is where, you know, God's being finds delight in an object. And uh, we would say that uh, God loves all creatures, including all sinners, without exception with the love of benevolence, because he does not wish that any should perish, but should turn and live. The love of beneficence, indeed, because he does good to all, but not the love of complacency, because the love of complacency, he must delight in only that which is delightful. And when he delights in his people, in his children, he, he delights really in his own image retraced in them. Insofar as any individual is you know, saved and conformed into the image of Christ, to that extent the Father delights in them for, for Christ's sake, for his own sake, because Christ is the image of God. So uh, I think we can say to people that God loves you, but I also don't know that that is a particularly useful thing to say in an evangelistic conversation. God has demonstrated his love for you in these ways. And so, yes, you may answer, you know, there's a proper response that is required of you in response to that show of mercy. But I don't think that we're trying to convince sinners that God loves them as much as we're trying to convince them first, certainly first, that God is angry with them because of their sin and because of the goodness that they've spurned against him, he, he, and, and as well as the fact that his law has been broken and uh, his, his anger and his righteous wrath is aroused and will break over them, and they deserve it. So uh, that's one thing. I think it's right to say God, God loves all people in those two senses and not the third. And, I, and yet I also don't know that there's a lot of usefulness in say, maybe leading with that. You hear a lot of evangelistic presentations start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, sinners are already hopelessly in love with themselves. They have a morbid self-love. They have a a sinful self-love. They don't need to have their ego stroked by telling them how much God thinks of them. In, In fact, they have to crucify that notion of feeling loved by being made much of And they have to learn how to feel loved by being freed to make much of the one who is deserved to be made much of. You follow that? So it's not that God, oh, he just wubs you, wubs you, wants to be your friend, and he just in heaven waiting for you and just yearning for you to just let him in and all these sorts of things. That's a very man-centered, unscriptural way to speak of the gospel. Now, when you say... Can you say to an unbeliever, Christ died for you as part of a, a, an evangelistic uh, presentation? Well, that's often because we think the gospel message is, well, Jesus died for you, so now you need to believe in him. But you'll, you'll notice that that kind of presentation is 
entirely absent from the Bible as a whole. There is never an instance in the scriptures, and certainly not in the preaching of the apostles, where they, where they tell anybody that God has died or Christ has died specifically and personally for them. What you hear is God's promises have come to pass in Jesus. You hear is Jesus has died for sinners, and you happen to be a sinner, right? And so you stand in need of the death that Jesus has died. Um, I don't think it's wise uh, to say Christ has died for you personally any more than I find it wise to say God has elected you and, and or the spirit will regenerate you. He might because that person might be one that God has chosen from before the foundation of the, of the world. But it, it, it also might not be true and we can't know that anybody is elect uh, except as they believe in Christ, as they repent and believe in Christ as evidence of that. So I, I, would, I, I tell people Jesus has died for sinners just like you and me. Right? Uh, Christ has died for his people, and he promises that if you turn from your sins and trust in him and come to him for salvation, you will find him a rich and plentiful Savior, and he will by, in, in no, by no means cast anyone out who comes to him. So rather than put it that, that way, Christ died for you, which would be false in the case of someone whom God has not chosen, and we can't know that. Rather than put it that way, I, I put it that way. Christ has died for sinners just like you and me, and he promises that if you repent and turn, you'll be saved. Anything to add, Phil? No, other than I agree with that completely. There are, there are two extremes to avoid here. One is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The other extreme is that I sometimes see, especially in people who've just awakened to an understanding of the sovereignty of God, they start to feel like it's their obligation to tell every sinner they meet that, you know, God has elected some people. You may be one of them or you may not. And so they're fearful to uh, preach the gospel in a way that actually invites all comers. Spurgeon fought this constantly because he ministered in an era where hyper-Calvinism was was rife. That's not the problem today, so it's usually not an issue. But I find young Calvinists sometimes fear to make the gospel invitation as open as Scripture does. And I think I agree absolutely with Mike that you don't say Christ died for you, but if you want to use that sort of open-ended invitation, be sure you use the language Scripture uses, which is the water of life is available to anyone who thirsts. So come, speak in terms like that. If you tell people Christ died for you, and if they understand the idea of atonement at all, then their natural question is going to be, well, if Christ died for me, then I don't have to die for my own sins. It's already been paid for. Uh, and I think that has left a whole lot of confusion, uh, it, you know, in tandem with this common notion today that the first thing and the most important thing to tell every sinner is how much God loves them. That's folly. And uh, I think it has filled the church with a lot of false converts because people who respond to a message about how much God loves them and wants to bless them without any understanding of the fact that they are sinners and their sin needs to be atoned for and forgiven, if that's the basis on which you come to Christ, you're not saved. If you have not repented of your sin, if you have not come to grips with the reality that you are hopelessly lost as a sinner and you can't save yourself, so you need a Savior, that's what the gospel is. And and if you haven't come to a realization of that, then... I, don't, don't consider yourself a Christian yet. 
Ian Murray has a great book called Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism that, that reminded me of. It's worth reading. It's in the bookstore. John Owen is famous for having written The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, which is the most fulsome defense of limited atonement in the history of the church. And it stands unassailed after 400 years, almost, 300-something. And I, just, just over the Christmas break, I read uh, a section of The Glory of Christ from, by John Owen in which he seeks to apply the, the, the discourses that he just had done for, you know, 100 pages in The Glory of Christ Part 1. And in Part 2, I remember the page series because I just read it, 419 to 432 in Volume 1 of his works, he addresses, he, he seeks to apply that discourse to unbelievers and then to believers. And the glory of Christ is the last thing that John Owen ever wrote. It was, it was his, it basically, this piece here was his deathbed gospel presentation to unbelievers. And somebody who, is, who had argued as forcefully for a particular redemption as John Owen just preaches so wonderfully a, a, a full and free gospel offer to unbelievers like, like you wouldn't believe, like you would assume, like the sort of the young Calvinists that he's talking about, the newer, newly minted Calvinists think, oh, you know, Christ didn't die for everybody, so therefore you might not be one of them. No, that, that's certainly not how the Puritans preached that, or, or, and John Owen in particular, who is the most forceful. So I, I commend both of those to you, Gloria Christ and Spurgeon versus hyper-Calvinism. Very good, thanks. Well, let's take the question in the back. Morning, my name is uh, Greg. I have a question regarding uh, forgiveness, specifically uh, Stephen when he was stoned and he prayed, lay not this sin to their charge, and even our Lord when he was crucified, prayed to the Father, and he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, since God honors Christ's prayer, um, were they forgiven for their, you know, what they did to both of, both of them? Thank you. Yeah. I think so. Um, I, I presented a, uh, a, a treatment of that in a sermon back in June um, called, what did I call it? It was something about he's a faithful high priest. You know, it's about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. It's somewhere in, uh, in June of 2021. And, you know, in that sermon, I, I kind of give a couple of, a couple of uh, answers that the commentators give as to, well, wait a second, if Jesus prayers are always heard of the Father, if, you know, he's a high priest who intercedes and is never turned down because he always prays in accord with the will of the Father, what about that expostulation in Luke 23, Father, forgive them? You know, and, and some commentators say, well, you know, he, he's not, he, he's actually, it's not necessarily a petition for their salvation, it's a petition for that they would be forgiven of this particularly heinous act, that God wouldn't lay it to their charge. Other commentators say, well, it's just sort of a human expression that Jesus is just sort of overflowing out of his goodness, and it's not necessarily intercession. I understand why, why those answers aren't particularly satisfactory for a lot of people, but when you, when you start to look at, um, for example, in Mark 15, right, not long after Jesus prays this, it's not in Luke 23, but in the parallel account in Mark, you have the centurion fall down and say, surely this man was the son of God. And so you see some efficacy there. And then when you recognize that on the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter is, is charging these, these Jews, this Jesus whom you crucified, right? Uh, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And what do they say? They, they fall down and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And, Paul, and, and Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, you know. 
in Acts chapter 3, a similar situation happens. You know, you know this is laid to your charge. He's, he's condemning the Jews for this. And, and then it says that 2,000 of them became obedient to the faith. And then even as late as Acts chapter 6, it says that many of the priests have become obedient to the faith. And so I, I think that the sort of the, the weight of other passages which insist that Jesus' prayers are, are always answered of the Father, I, at the very least, I, 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 don't find it, I don't find it potentially insuperable to say, yeah, those for whom Jesus prayed at the crucifixion, were, were among the 7,000 or five, five to 6,000 people in the, in the later weeks, in the coming weeks, to have, have turned and become obedient to the faith that God answered that prayer. I would much rather say that, which is a little bit of an argument from silence. I would much rather say that than Jesus' prayers are sometimes ineffective. Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, that's the same position John MacArthur takes in his book, um, The Murder of Jesus. Um, he goes through that section, and I think what he says is that there were, there were surely those who had hands-on role in crucifying Christ who w- might have been among the people who were saved at Pentecost and in the subsequent weeks, so that in that sense, Christ's prayer was answered. And I don't think you have to, I don't think you have to assume that everybody involved in the process was ultimately saved, but that there were those who, who, who were saved and forgiven, and Christ's prayer was answered in that sense. Right, we know that, because, because it's, it's not if everybody is... It's not like everybody remotely involved with the crucifixion is included under that them, because we know Judas was intimately involved with it, and he's the son of perdition, and he is, you know, the one... It would be better if he wasn't born, so... That's good. Thank you. Well, let's do one more that was emailed, and we'll go back again. This one says, in 1 John 2.28, John says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So the question is, does this mean that it's possible for believers to see the Lord for the first time and feel shame? And this person said, I thought our reaction at this moment would be an experience of perfect joy. If some believers will be ashamed, can you explain why? Said you know, it's a good, it's a good question. Yeah, I'll say yeah. that I've actually pondered that myself because there are things that I have done and things in my life that I, I'm, I'm ashamed of. And you see this sort of lived out in Scripture where, for example, when Peter realizes who he's dealing with, he falls down in front of Christ and says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And I think there's an element of that in all of us if, if we really recognize how, how sinful we are and how, how, again, how much in need of a Savior we are. There's an there's a element of shame that goes with that, and yet I think like our tears and sadness and all of that, it will be swept away by intense joy. And I don't know what the timeline is like that. I don't know uh, how time works in heaven. I, I mean, we're all going to be a called to give an account, how long does that take for millions and billions of people? I, I don't know. So I'm not going to draw a timeline for you and say it's going to happen like this. But I think in every believer's heart, there, there must be a, a sort of this dual feeling that on the one hand, I, I so much want Christ to come and I want to see him and I want, I want to see his glory and receive the glory that's promised. And yet, 
I know there are things that I have to give account for that I'm ashamed to do. And so I, I think when you see a warning like that in Scripture, this is true of all the warning passages in Hebrews and all of the various warnings to believers about falling away, it's not suggesting that you might lose your salvation, but these warnings are actually the instruments that God sovereignly uses to keep us in pursuit of sanctification. If you ponder the return of the Lord and think, I don't want to be ashamed when he comes, that's a motive to pursue holiness. And, uh, and so those warnings in Scripture function that way, I think, more than, more than trying to set up a theology where we have to explain how, you know, you might fall away. Yeah, I mean, th- what are the two options, right? So, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away. So, what would it mean if we were shrinking? So, you could, you could, the question really is, is the command to abide in him the command to stay united to Christ, which is to say, not show yourself to be an unbeliever and an apostate and and then demonstrate that you were never really saved to begin with? Or is it is it a you know a command to maintain perpetual communion with Christ? Abide in him in the sense that, you know, don't cut yourself off from him, don't take away from the, the spiritual you know communications of his love and grace by neglecting the means of grace, by not reading your Bible, not praying, not going to church, these sorts of things, so that you're found in some sort of pattern of sinning that you would not want to be found in when Jesus returned. I I think about that too, you know, like you you do something stupid and you go, man, if Jesus came back right now, it'd be kind of anticlimactic for me, wouldn't it, right? (laughs) Like that was a dumb thing for me to be doing, to be, be occupied in. I'd much rather be busy in the Lord's work and delighting in his grace than than, you know, arguing with somebody or, you know, whatever. And, and so I, don't, I think the answer for me is I don't know which one that that is, but I could see either one being a realistic interpretation. Keep up the means of grace so that every moment you would be glad to say, welcome, Jesus, come enter into your kingdom, I'm ready to go home, you know. And yet he could also be saying, Brethren, don't fall away. Don't reveal yourselves not to be brethren at all. Abide in him so that you won't be unbelievers when he comes. The scripture often, the, the, the apostles often speak of a, a mixed audience as if they were all believers according to the judgment of charity, even knowing that some of them are not. It's like when I say to you, brothers and sisters, I'm almost certain, in some, places, some cases I am certain that some of you are not brothers and sisters, uh, but I, I address the whole uh, that way because I think, Paul does in Hebrews, and yes, Paul wrote Hebrews, and, um, and John does here. Good. Do you right. believe Paul wrote Hebrews? Yeah, Paul wrote <laughs> Hebrews. <laughs> by, by, by Luke's hand. Yeah, yeah you know, there was, a, there was recently on Jeopardy a question right. about that. And uh, yeah, the question was uh, something about which of Paul's epistles did he say something? Or... or did he, did he quote the most scriptures, I think it was? And the answer the, the Christian guy gave was the book of Romans, because that's the answer I would have given, too, because I'm not certain that Paul wrote Hebrews. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the answer they were looking for was Hebrews. And Darlene asked me about how, how can they be, why do they treat that like it's a given? And the answer is, in the King James Bible, if you look at the header, it says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. It's... it's, it's the- it's fairly the it's it's almost uniform throughout church history until the 16th until century. Phil. No, no, no. 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 
until the last little while, you know, with, with the rise of... Actually, I think there is some good evidence of Pauline touches in Hebrews. I don't know if that means Paul wrote it or his companion Luke wrote it or, you know, Barnabas or somebody like that. I, it was it was what John MacArthur preached through Hebrews. That's what sort of made me revisit my thinking on it. I had always assumed it was Paul. There are three epistles in the New Testament that quote, the just shall live by faith, and Hebrews is one of them. And so one of the arguments is that is a theme that ties the Pauline epistles together. So Hebrews, because it quotes the just shall live by faith, must be one of those. You know, it's an interesting argument, but the truth is the epistle is anonymous, and Paul says in, I think in his epistle, I forget which one, he says, this is how you know this letter came legitimately from me because I'm signing it with my own hand. And there's no uh, identification uh, as to who wrote Hebrews. So it's an open question, I think. Yeah. And uh, but it's, it's not something we would be dogmatic. But you don't have to believe that to belong to grace. Amen. Church. No, not, you don't. Not in our doctrinal state. It's just a fun, that's just a fun But it surprises discussion. me to know that Mike Riccardi believes Paul wrote Hebrews. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's the external evidence, the fact that there's so many folks in church history, you know, that, that lined right up on that and that it's admission into the canon, which, of course, was contested originally because of the anonymity of it, was almost almost the arguments given back in, in okay, those so, days. Okay, so you're appealing to tradition. Yeah, I that's me. It. All right. <laughs> oh, no. This that is going to be the next social that, that media. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> And a little, a little I think Peter break. agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, he, he's yeah. careful about it. But yeah, I think, I think Peter agrees that Paul... Because he's been teaching through Hebrews. He yeah. just asked Because yeah, yeah. he's, yeah, he's preaching through Hebrews. We'll find out. Yeah. Peter's not here today? He's not. Okay, all right. Yeah. We'll, we'll tell him we missed him. Harry, do you have a question? Uh, yes. First of all, thank you both for another year of your shepherding us. And, and we are all looking forward to this. Um, as they mentioned Stephen and the heavens opened up to Stephen when he was praying and I'm having a hard time sometimes when I pray feel like I'm distant from God and I'm trying to uh, seek a more intimate closeness and I learned this new word called aseity and I'd like for you to give me a, a definition and uh, things to ponder on on who I'm praying to and to be closer. I think Beatitudes, it says that the pure of heart shall see, see God. And uh, I seek to do that this year closer. I'm reading a book on the holiness of God. But okay, two questions there. One is about, you know, praying and feeling that God is distant. And, I, and, and you connect that with the idea of seeing God. Uh, because I think you cited the example of Stephen who, who, while he was being martyred, could see, he, he said he could see Christ. I don't think that's encouraging us to think that you can literally, with no, your eyes, no, no. see a manifestation of God when you pray. No. But that experience that while I'm praying, God is distant from me, that's a common experience of all believers, so much so that you find it throughout the Psalms. And I've preached on this before, that uh, psalms, certain psalms, like Psalm 13, I think Psalm 17, they, they, they start out with this appeal by the psalmist who's saying, God feels 
distant from him. He says it in different ways, but usually by the end of the psalm, he's resolved his angst and uh, just clings to God by faith. He doesn't see God with his eyes, but, but he gets past that sense that God is distant by reminding himself usually of the grace of God that, that uh, reaches out to us so that while we feel like we're reaching out to God and he's not, he's not responding, our faith tells us that God is constantly reaching out to us in grace and, and uh, overseeing us even when, as we go through trials. He superintends the trial to make sure that there's no temptation that takes us that isn't common to man and that we can't overcome. So, so my advice when you feel that you're praying to God and he's distant is to pray through some of those psalms like Psalm 13, Psalm 17, and so on. Aseity, I'm going to let Mike answer that one because he is the expert in theology proper and he knows what the word aseity means. <laughs> I don't know. That might be Peter Sammons too. So, well, first of all, Harry, I, I just I want to commend that desire and commend it to all of you if there's something that's on my heart for, for each of you as a new year dawns and really for my own self, it's I, I want the people under my care to, to pursue Christ more nearly, dearly, and see him more clearly, you know, every day, you know, and so that hunger of, you know, Lord, you're far, you're far from me. I sense, you know, the absence of your, of your face, you know, that, that's, that's wonderful. You know, the fact that you can, you can go without him, you know, in those, in those seasons of withdrawal and, and, and yet yearn for him. Uh, that's one of the reasons that, that Christ will uh, mysteriously hide himself is to, is to sort of whet the appetite and to urge us to pursue him all the more. And then the inclination to say, I'm feeling a little distant, and so teach me about my God. Tell me about deep theological truths like aseity. That's also an, a wonderful um, instinct. And so I commend that to all of you. God feels far. Well, let me, get, let me, let me bury my head in a theology book. Wait a second. I, you mean a devotional book? No, no, no. I mean a theology book because it's our theology that drives our doxology. It's our, it's our, it's our doctrine that drives our devotion. And, and you can't have, you can't have the, the, the far-reaching branches of satisfying communion without the deep flowing roots of good sound doctrine. And so just in general, I mean, quickly, I mean, aseity is, it comes from the Latin phrase, a se, from himself. And it means that God has life from and in himself, that he is self-sufficient. I am that I am. You know, I don't derive my being from any other uh, source of life or, or being or existence, but I, I am my own existence itself. Uh, and so the, the idea, you know, when Jesus says, in John 5, just as the Father has life in himself, so also it was given to the Son to have life in himself. What he's, what he's talking about, there's actually some really lofty uh, theological truths, but, but in, in that notion that the Father has life from himself, he doesn't get it from any other, he is perfectly self-existent, self-sufficient, independent, and is actually the source of life for, for all other things. We'll take one more from the back there, Jeremiah. Yes. Hi, my name is Luke Brennan, and my question is, why are you a pastor? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. You want to go first? I'll let you go first. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I think the ultimate answer is because God made me one, and, and I think that, that that's a conviction of mine that, uh, you know, seminaries or overzealous grandmothers don't make pastors. 
oh, little boy, you're going to be a preacher. No, no, no. Um, that God makes pastors. And plenty of people can stand up and preach sermons for a living, but God alone makes pastors. And so uh, for me, uh, I got saved when I was 15 and, you know, began reading the Bible really in earnest about a year later after that and just was blown away by Christ, blown away by the picture of Jesus that I saw in the scriptures and had never felt so found out by a book that I always said that I believed but never read and never knew what it said. And, and was just driven to, to read it and understand it and know, and know God and know Christ. And I, I kind of thought early on, like, well, shouldn't we all just sell everything we have and be itinerant preachers, right? And, and I think that's maybe how a lot of us begin the Christian life. Like, this is, I got to give everything away. I got to give every, my whole life to this. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm about 17. That could be youthful intemperance before I become a vagrant. How about I, you know, follow the people in my church and seek advice from my elders and see how there seem to be so many normal people um, following Jesus without being homeless. And, uh, and so I started to think about college, and, and so I, I pursued a course of study where I could make a living at something thinking, you know, I don't know that I'm mature enough to pursue ministry at, at the moment. But then all through college, I just, you know, dug further in and, and spent time in my church with my, my best friends, you know, pressing one another to a sharper understanding of Scripture. It's when I read Mortification of Sin by John Owen and The End for Which God Created the World by Jonathan Edwards. And when I taught those books in, in a couple of consecutive summers, when I was 19 and 20, or maybe 20 and 21, I got the first taste of sort of teaching people unto the benefit of their souls. And all I did was take somebody else's words and try to make them understandable. And I realized that's what preaching is. I'm not trying to make something up. I'm trying to take somebody else's words and make them understandable and apply them to the hearts of, of the people of God. And when I saw the lives of my, my best friends being benefited and changed by, by my labor, because all I would do is come home from school, come home from work, read John Owen, and go to Bible study and, and teach it. And that's all I had time for, you know. And, and I thought, what a marvelous existence. What a marvelous existence to be devoted to understanding the truth and helping God's people understand it. And then in the years inter, in following, the years following, I began to get a, a, a more opportunities to serve that way and a, a greater and greater constraining desire to say, I've got to do this with my life. If I, if I pursue this other course of study, I was a, a teacher I'm going to be spending my entire life longing for Sunday and, and thinking I'm wasting it. I just have to do this. And at some point, the desire became so constraining that I went to my elders and said, what do you think about me for this? Because I realized that I, I need external affirmation. I have a strong, strong desire. Would you affirm these things? And they said, I think that you could go to seminary. And so I came out to seminary, still actually wondering if I was called to the ministry. I was really awed by the loftiness of the calling and the, the holiness of life that was required, the levels of self-discipline that were required. And so I, I came out here with, with Jana uh, when I was 23, almost 24, thinking, they may kick me out, you know, and we have to go back a year and a half from now, and, and you know, I'll go back to teaching, I guess. That's fine. And it just seemed in the, in the time here, the Lord continued to affirm my usefulness to his people. And so I just tried to be as faithful as I could be. Yeah, I became a pastor by accident. Uh, I, I also was converted at age 17, and I came out of a background where I, I grew up going to church, Sunday school, 
almost every Sunday of my life, but it was a, it was a bad church where liberal theology was taught, the Bible wasn't believed, and I never heard the gospel. And so when at age 17 I heard and understood the gospel for the first time, I just had this driving desire to understand Scripture better and to be able to teach it to other people. And uh, so my first thought was simply, I I need to learn the Bible. And so I enrolled at Moody Bible Institute and uh, went through getting my bachelor's degree there thinking, I could be a pastor, I might be an evangelist. I didn't know what I would do. But uh, in the last semester that I spent there, I took a job as a proofreader for Moody Press, a Christian publishing company, and thought, I love doing this. I could do this for the rest of my life. It, it's, it's valid ministry. It, it lets me read and learn biblical material. And, and I would have been happy, frankly, being a book editor the rest of my life. Then I heard John MacArthur preach, and I thought, this guy needs to be writing books. And I was a book editor, and I thought, I'd love to, I'd love to take his material and help him turn it into books. But there was never really any opportunity for me to meet him or do that. I, I listened to him for three or four years uh, before I finally met him because the editors at Moody Press asked me to be involved in a project to uh, publish the John MacArthur Commentaries. And uh, so I started, so I met John in, a, in that context and started working on some of his material. He liked what I did, and he said, you should just quit your job here and come to work for me. <laughs> that was actually 40 years ago this month, exactly 40 years ago this month. And I moved out here still thinking that, you know, I'm a book editor, that's what I'm going to do. I was at Grace Church for 11 years before I taught adults in any context larger than my own living room. And it was, I think, Lance Quinn who founded Grace Life, cajoled me into teaching. And uh, I started teaching occasionally in Grace Life, still not thinking of myself as a pastor. But then one year on the elders retreat, the elders at Grace Church, while I wasn't there, I missed the retreat, they decided in absentia to ordain me. (laughs) Without my permission even. So... They made me a pastor, and I guess that's the answer to the question, why am I a pastor? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've always felt called and gifted and had the desire to teach and preach, and I love it. And looking back, I'm glad my life took the course it did, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a delight and a privilege to be a pastor and a fulfillment of a dream that I didn't even know I had. Yeah. So. It's so much. It's so much better to be to be constrained into the work than to force yourself into it, isn't it? Yeah, it you is. Know, uh, Spurgeon said, "Be fit for your work, and you will never be out of it." And and you know, don't don't worry about trying to go and make you know openings for yourself to preach here and there or to try to weasel your way in. You know, uh, the the fact that I'm uh, that I got to be on staff at Grace Community Church is uh, a miracle. I mean, it's a, mi- a miracle. Like I was just sitting there trying to finish seminary. And it just happened that a whole bunch of pastors decided to leave at the same time. And so they're like, well, you're left, you know. Um, and, you know, and you go to your wife and you say, they want me to do this. And she's like, are you serious? They want you, you know. It's like, I know. Um, but maybe we should say yes and see how it goes, you know. It's, and, it's true, though. The ideal is you want other people to recognize your giftedness and, and 
pursue it. I think a lot of young men who desire the, I don't know, the, the, the ability to stand up and be recognized and all that sort of force themselves into full-time ministry when they're really not necessarily called or gifted. So you have to be careful about that. I knew Mike before I ever met him because he used to write comments on my blog. And, uh, and I, I would read these comments, and, and he had a little picture of himself, and I thought, he looks like a grade school kid. <laughs> but I was, in writes, gra- I was in graduate school. Yeah, but he, he writes like a, an advanced theologian. And so when I heard he was coming to Grace Church, I encouraged him, come out here. And uh, it was no surprise to me that he ended up on staff and that the Lord has used him the way he has. The first thing Phil ever said to me when I introduced myself and said my name, shook his hand, was, wow, you're younger than I thought you'd be. <laughs> I still get that. That's good. All right. I know we have several in the back. We'll get there. But it reminded me, as one of our young, young ones has asked a question, this is one I have to kind of formulate because I was only told this, not written down. Um, but Pastor John has recently been going through, obviously, Ephesians. We went through Ephesians chapter 6. For those of us who are parents, you know, one of our favorite verses is verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we tell our children that often. But it goes on, you know, in three it says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. But then in four it says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And what recently one of the ones that was just verbally communicated to me was wondering, what's that balance between, you know, first-time obedience? Many of you remember that back from a few years back. But, uh, you know, that was very much harped on was first-time obedience, and I understand that. At the same time, that whole idea of do not provoke your children to anger. Guys, maybe talk about, if you can, from your experience as fathers, what is that balance to where, yes, we want obedient children, but yet there's age-appropriate obedience, there's situational obedience, there's, you know, things that we need to take into consideration so that we don't provoke our children or even make them little Pharisees running yeah. around? That's a great question, and, and it's one I've pondered since I was, I was in doing some youth work back in my 20s, and I wasn't a parent yet, but looking at the, the kids in the youth group and the parents in our church, it surprised me, frankly, that the parent, parents who were the sternest disciplinarians and the strictest parents had some of the most ill-behaved kids in our church when they got away from their parents. They would behave around their parents, but as soon as they got turned loose, you know, their, their fallenness manifested itself. And then there were other parents who I thought, frankly, were too permissive, and yet they had really good kids and, and all that. And I realized, just sort of watching this over the years that I was involved in youth ministry, that uh, discipline is important. Scripture uses that word specifically with regard to parenting, but it shouldn't be harsh. You know, uh, in Hebrews, when, when Paul talks about <laughs> God discipline. Another convert. Amen. No, I'm just, I'm just deferring to the weaker brother there. <laughs> He talks about the, how the Lord's discipline is, is full of love and for our good, and the parent's discipline of his children should be that way. Don't make your kid's life a drudgery, or the minute they're free from your oversight, they're, 
their fallenness will manifest itself. And the most important thing you can do as a parent is participate in your child's life. Make sure your child has fun and is able to be a child and understand that children do childish things. It's not necessarily bad behavior for a kid to to do something childish. If, if I, as an adult, do something childish, scold me. But if your kids do something childish, nurture them, tr- you know, train them, love them. Uh, and so, so I observed that as a, as a young man in youth ministry. Now I'm a grandparent looking back, and, the, and, and I realized the regrets that I have, and pretty much everybody I know who's a parent who's been through the process and out the other end, if they regret anything, I don't know anyone who regrets not being harsh enough with their kids. But most of us regret the times we could have spent time with them and didn't, the things we could have done as a family and didn't. If I could go back and do parenting over again, I'd spend more time with my kids. I would set my work aside and play with my kids more than I did, things like that. You want to make their life a joy and teach them that life in Christ is full of joy. If you make it all about discipline and all about rules, if you teach your child the way you would train a puppy, you're going to end up with a dysfunctional child, and as soon as he gets off to college, he's going to reject the faith and reject you, and, and you'll be sorry. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a young parent, a parent of young ones, you know, I'm constantly asking myself, you know, well, yeah, what's the proper application of this? I don't want to be hands-off, but I also don't want to be heavy-handed you know, I, I want them to obey my voice because there's going to be times when I speak that they they need to obey, otherwise they'll get hurt. You know, don't play in traffic. Stop. Stop right now. And, you know, that happens, that happened this week. You know, stop, you know, and it was danger and, you know, they didn't stop. And so there, were, there was a forceful rebuke. Why? Because I'm, I'm seeking their safety. And so, yeah, and so, but even, and so the, the argument is, well, then, even in trivial matters, insist upon obedience to your voice. Yes, of course, I get that. The, one of the worst things that you can do is be inconsistent and then, you know, confuse the child and say, well, wait a second, I did this before and it was, ha-ha, that's funny, and I did this now, and then you're spanking me, you know, what's the deal? Is this good or bad? I, I understand all of that, and I think seek to... I think I, I think I seek to be as consistent as I can be, but that's not to say that there aren't times where you just you just sort of read the situation and you go, I think think this is a time for mercy. Like I think this is a time for grace. You even say that to them, you know, you know, you, you you've, you're disobeying, and and yet Daddy's going to give you grace right now. You deserve this, but you're going to get grace, and you don't deserve it. And I think that that's a that's a good model. One of the things that you want to do, I think, in particular, to not provoke your children to wrath or exasperate them, is another translation, is the idea that you know you, you want to have reasonable expectations, you know, for their level of development. And that's I, I'm thinking about that a lot because my kids are still very young. I mean, the youngest one's five months, and the you know the the oldest are five, and and so you know you, you know you can't expect if you if you expect you know, a three-year-old to behave like he's seven, right? You're going to be consistently disappointed and you're going to frustrate the daylights out of that three-year-old because you're asking him to do something that he just can't do. And, uh, you know, if you have, 
you know, and, and, and you know, pit that with wherever. You want to be, you want to recognize that not not every kid can, you know, be quiet for an hour and a half. Not every kid can stop moving. You know, when, when I hear the cries, you know, I, I think that's great. I'm so glad the children are here. And you know, it always feels, it always is louder. And I know this from experience. It's always louder when the kid's on your lap than you think it is across the room, right? It's not like it's not any distraction. So, you know, yeah, you can make your way to the back if you need to do that. But, you know, it, it probably feels worse to you than, than to everybody else because we're just happy that there are kids in the room and that they're under the, under the external preaching of the gospel and the, the ordinances and, and, you know, the means of grace. So d- don't create developmental checks or don't, don't create checkpoints for your kids' behavior that are just beyond their level of development's ability to, to acquiesce to. Otherwise, they're going to get frustrated, and, um, you know, th- then that's how they get exasperated. That's how they get provoked to anger. Yeah, no, that's good. I think, uh, you know, I think we've seen, too, you know, that first child is handled much differently than the third child in our case, whether that's good or bad. I think that's typical in families. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah our first child, Jeremiah, is back there, so I'll talk about him. He was, he was easy, you know. Mm. Parenting is frightening. I get that. And when he came, I thought, am I ready even to be a dad? But he was an easy baby. And I, I remember thinking, I don't get what people think is so hard about. <laughs> and then we had a second, Jetty. Jetty wasn't at all like his brother. And, uh, and suddenly I realized, oh, this is why people think parenting is hard. But now I look back at all that as a, from a grandfather's perspective, and I think, you know, kids are fun. That's what we ought to think. Mm. Kids are fun. Mm. And have fun with them. It's yeah. Parenting isn't a, it shouldn't be a drudgery. It should yeah. be fun. Yeah, you can discern outright defiance, yes, right? Say, yeah. No. You know, I'm not, you know, huh, I'm just staying here. Come here. You know? <laughs> Versus, versus, like, don't touch that, and it's sort of like, you know. Now, that's not good either, right? Because, they, you know, they're, they're, they're testing you a little bit, and you have to help. But, you know, that's more of like, no, don't do that. No, and then you go get them, you know what I mean? Versus, all right, you're playing with me, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smack your hand. You know, that, I think that's, that's, over, that's overdoing it. And I think we need to guard our hearts, you know, what is our motive behind our discipline? I mean, obviously, it's incredibly important. You know, I mean, the Bible teaches us with obedience comes blessing. So I want to teach my child that, that with obedience comes blessing. But at the same time, why am I demanding that obedience? Is it so that I look good at church on Sunday morning when my child can sit? Or is it because, no, I want them to sit because I want them to eventually be able to sit and learn, sit and listen, you know, things like that. And, and, and I think we need to protect ourselves that it's not this pride issue or that I'm demanding this and that I deserve this or, you know. And then from the child's perspective as well, too, like Mike was saying, I think you can quickly figure out What's their heart behind that? Was it just something silly where they fell down and broke something, or did they break it intentionally? And that can happen very early, you know, very young. And I, so I think we need to try to hopefully understand our child's heart and hopefully understand our own heart, you know, when we're going through this, that that child's a blessing to the family, that child's a blessing to those around him, but not, you know, just doing it out of sheer, kind of like Phil said, 
you know, I want the dog that obeys, you know. I want to be the dog that walks nicely down the street and that somehow reflects positively on me. I mean, that's not my motive behind, you know, instructing our kids. And that's what I was saying with our oldest. We've had to apologize to Caitlin many times for, oops, sorry about uh, that first child thing. That was a little over the top. Maybe a few too many rules, maybe a few too many charts, maybe a few too many, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, things that we were acquiring of her. And as it, you know, went along, we we started to figure out those things weren't really the most important thing. And then just to have people around you that are a little older, that are a step older, that are a step ahead, to to be able to you know look at and say, okay, maybe this isn't as horrible as I thought, or. And to be able to get wisdom from them as well, too, is really important. So, Good. All right. Yes, John, you going in the back. Yes, sir. So as a young man preparing for pastoral ministry, I see very close ties to the 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 qualifications and Ephesians 5 being essential for elder qualification. What does it look like for a godly man to lead a godly woman? And what does it look like for him to lead his household well? knowing that I will be required to model that for my congregation. Yeah, well, if you just go to, if you do, you do go to Ephesians 5, you know, husbands love your wives. So, you know, first of all, there's to be, there's to be that love, that affection that overflows into action. And what is the action? Christ gave himself for the church. So it's going to be a, a, a sacrificial kind of love, a love that denies one's, maybe more fleshly pleasures like and by that I don't mean something illicit I mean like I'd rather watch TV than do the dishes right now and then instead of and so you die to self in that sense Wait was that in there? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's that idea of of sacrifice my my life is for her right and so if she says hey can you help with this or can you do this or I would be blessed by this right you know though you might have a preference to go out with the guys or have a weekend, a ski weekend away or whatever, or whatever, and, and the kids are at home, you know, no, you know, you stay and you, you know, you, you count those things as, as lost joyfully for the sake of imitating Christ, knowing his grace in loving like, like he loved the church. So it's a sacrificial love. It's a sanctifying love, right? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So my life my giving up of myself for my wife is unto the goal of her sanctification, which means I need to be a spiritual leader and provider. I need to guide. I need to guard uh, spiritual influences. I need to note um, deficiencies in sanctification gently and graciously. Uh, when I see them, I need to model that kind of, uh, you know, putting away of sin with my own deficiencies in sanctification so that she sees me pursuing Christ as much as I would seek to push her to Christ. The, you know, ultimately, it's, you recognize that that's a stewardship because you're going to present her to Christ as, as part of the church. Nourishing and cherishing speaks to uh, that, that sort of care and provision. I, I work hard so that I can... I, you know, I work hard so that I can make enough money not to live like a fat cat, but to provide my wife with a, a you know, reasonable existence whereby we can raise children uh, as disciples of Jesus, right? So if, if we have less than we need, then it's my job to go and get more, you know, whatever that looks like, whether it's furthering education so I can get a better job, whether it's getting a second job, um, to, to nourish and cherish. 
and then that, that not just physically like that, but also spiritually. I'm to, I'm to make sure that her soul is nourished on the truths of the gospel and not neglected. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's a quick run through Ephesians 5. It's a good run through, true, too. And, and it's a th- this, this idea that as a leader you're to be a servant is a theme that runs through Scripture. I've just been working on an article on this, that the paradigm for leadership in Scripture is the shepherd. And there's a, there's a scene in, I think, Luke chapter 20, where the disciples, uh, I think John and James and John send their mom to ask Jesus to give them a favored position, and then they get into an argument over who's the greatest, and Jesus interrupts that and says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles uh, exercise dominion over one another. It's an authoritarian kind of leadership. And Jesus says, it, it shall not be that among you, but whoever would be first, let him be the servant of all. And that's the definition of leadership in Scripture. And it applies in those qualifications for eldership that you named. It applies to a husband, anyone in a position of authority in the context of the church. If he sees himself as authoritative and, and the boss, that's bad. That's, that's not the role we're called to as leaders or as husbands. But it's a servant's role where you see yourself as, you, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the key to it. It's not about he's the boss, he's the Lord, and so you get to exercise authority. But like Jesus said, whoever would be first, even in your family, let him be the servant of all. Yeah. So that's the answer to your question. What does it look like for a man uh, to be a, the right kind of husband to his wife and father to the family? He should be a servant to them. Yeah. And, and just real quick, that two-by-two two paradigm, you know, provision and protection, both in the spiritual and physical spheres. So physical protection, I think I have a stewardship as a man, as the, the stronger of the two. Peter calls the woman the weaker vessel. As the stronger vessel, I have a duty to keep my body in the kind of shape that could be uh, helpful for protection if necessary. I'm not the biggest guy in the world, surely not. But I think it's, it's incumbent upon all of us as men to be strong enough to protect our wives and children if the, if, if the occasion should arise. You pray it never has to, right? Um, physical uh, provision. So I'm to work hard and, you know, put food on the table and a roof over the head, you know, that sort of a thing. Uh, I'm not to be lazy or negligent or indigent really, or, you know, indolent maybe is the word that I'm looking for in, you know, letting my wife bear the burden of if you don't go to work, then the family can't, can't make it. You know, she could work if she likes. And if she's feeling, fulfilling all her other roles, um, uh, properly, you know, when young children are in the home, maybe that's, that looks different than leaving the home, you know, but, uh, if all the other roles are, are fulfilled, a woman can work for sure. Um, but, but she shouldn't feel like she has to work. Otherwise this isn't going to work. If that's the case, I got to do something. I got to take steps toward faithfulness to, to change that spiritual provision. Okay. So that's me. That's me laboring in the scriptures enough and pressing hard after Christ enough uh, being before the face of God, you know, sensing a, a farness like, like Harry was talking about before and going to do something about it so that I can care for another person spiritually. Right? As a pastor, you do that 
for the whole congregation. But as a husband, you do that for, for one. And, and if you have children, for, for that little congregation at home, you know, you're, you're responsible to lead them spiritually and to help them understand when temptations perplex them, when patterns of sin come upon them, when they're, they're a, a, out of certain sorts. You, know, you have to know your own heart well enough and be a, a doctor of your own soul well enough to be able to doctor their souls. And then spiritual protection. And so that's knowing the scriptures well enough and knowing the threats, the spiritual threats well enough to be able to diagnose error and warn away from it. And not just error, but errors, like doctrinal error, but errors of practice and errors of, of we could call it errors of piety, right? Where there's a, a slothfulness spiritually. I need to be able to discern that and, and say, hey, one, model it in my own life, like put off slothfulness spiritually, but then discern slothfulness uh, in my wife and in my children and, and seek to set them on a proper course going forward. So love that is sacrificial and sanctifying in a paradigm of spiritual and physical protection and provision. All right, we've got two more questions in well, less than 10 minutes. Well, you know what? I'm going to actually jump to a last question because I don't believe you can do two. They waited so patiently. Eight well, minutes. I know. I, it's just, it's going to be a little tough. So right. let me do this because I'd, I'd like to get to this. This is the beginning of 2023. Somebody has asked me, they said, what threats do you perceive for the church in the next year? Um, maybe even big church sense, maybe grace church sense, maybe grace life sense. I mean, you know kind of address that as we go into a new year. Mm. And maybe it's not a threat, maybe it's just your heart for our people, but at the same time, that kind of sometimes goes along with the threats you perceive. And by the way, for those who didn't get to ask questions, we're going to do this again next week, right? That's that's your call. Okay, so we're going to do this again next week. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, I've become reluctant to uh, prognosticate about threats and dangers. I I've spent so much time over the years critiquing what's happening now, you know, through the emerging church movement and all the other dangers that uh, and, and false doctrines that I've critiqued over the years. People tend to think that that's a hobby of mine to sort of study what's going on in the church and, and see what's coming. And what I've, what I've learned is I can't always see what's coming. I had no idea. If you'd asked me this question five years ago, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge to Grace Church? I, I would not have said a virus that's going to force us to shut down for a while and, and, and even cause division within the church. All the ramifications of the, of the COVID scare, uh, I did not see coming. I wasn't prepared for. Uh, and so, you know, my prayer is... Uh, that, that the Lord would give us grace to face whatever comes when it comes. But as I look at the horizon, I think there's a very real possibility that the church in America, all churches in America that are biblically sound and biblically based, are, are looking uh, on the horizon at a time of persecution uh, like we've never seen before because it's, it's suddenly become hate speech or racism or some other evil thing if you simply hold to a biblical morality. If you don't accept, you know, transgenderism and homosexuality and all of the other things that our culture has now begun to celebrate. And if you don't join in that celebration, you're going to be labeled evil and 
persecution will come. It's already at, at the stage where in Canada there have, there have been uh, people like put in prison for hate speech, things they've posted on Twitter or whatever that you're not allowed to do. At Grace to You, we, we broadcast in England and Canada, and in both of those countries, we get fined if uh, there's anything on the broadcast that, even if you're just reading Scripture, to suggest that homosexuality is sinful, you get a fine. And so there's going to be all this pressure, I think, in the years to come for the church to silence uh, our commitment to biblical morality. And I think we may even be asked to pay a severe price for holding to those convictions. And as I look at the future, my, my prayer for the church is that there will be a remnant within the church who have the courage and commitment to stand firm no matter what it costs us. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that I, as I look to the future, I kind of worry about for my grandkids and their generation. It's going to be very difficult to to stay true to biblical uh, teaching and and be firm in it and be outspoken for it. You will be an outcast in society. That's not unusual in church history. It's It seems unusual to us because America's had a couple of hundred years of relative freedom to to worship and express convictions as freely as we want. But that's, that's quickly, that window is closing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somewhat related to that. You know, I'm, I'm praying, you know, a lot that, you know, well, one, I'm praying that John MacArthur lives to be 120 like Moses. (laughs) Amen. But I I also recognize, you know, that, that maybe isn't the, isn't the average. uh, And, you know, in, in, in what will, in the next however many years, eventually be a transition, I'm really praying that, that the church will, will pull together and remain strong under a unified leadership. I feel, you know, one, one of the reasons that Grace Church is able to make the stand that we're able to make is because of John MacArthur. But what happens when John MacArthur isn't here? If there are men who have the same convictions and the same willingness to stand, will there be the same people willing to follow and willing to to face all of what Phil's just talking about? Uh, will there be a rallying point of support where it is, okay, here's a group of 5,000 members and maybe even more regular attenders following after not one man, uh, unless it's the God man, but a team of men that that God man has given as gifts to the church uh, that that one servant for 50-some years, 60-some years by then, who knows, right, has labored to pour himself into. I would just, I would hate for John's legacy to be, well, he went to his reward, and then everybody decided, let's move to Florida, it's easier, or Texas, or, or let's, let's go to the church closer to my house, because, you know, nobody's John MacArthur, and, and that's right, and I'm, I'm asking you all to adjust your expectations to whatever comes next. It's not going to be John. It's not going to be. But will there be people? Uh, will there be people around? I, I would hate for it to be. Oh, and then the church shrinks, and 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 it was all about the one man and his personality. I think we honor John's legacy by by showing strength. That the fruit of that is something that lasts through a second and third generation. So I'm praying hard for faithfulness for Grace Church, not only in its leadership, maybe even primarily. I'm doing that in its leadership, and that God would would orchestrate whatever has to happen. But 
but also, as, at least as much, um, in its, you know, in its congregation, in its membership, that, that we don't just say, well, he's not here, so I'm leaving. I, I, I feel that temptation. You know what I mean? Well, I'm, in a lot of ways, we're here because we love our pastor and because he's shown us Christ more clearly than anybody else really can. Uh, because of his just dogged insistence of just explaining the text and that being all, you know. But I, I want, I'm, I'm jealous to honor him uh, by carrying that flag forward to a second generation, show, showing the world in the darkest part, one of the darkest places in the country, that the light can shine brighter when the dark gets darker. Number, so that's big picture. Uh, indiv- and I can talk about this forever. But um, because I pray, seconds. because I pray for you all, and I and I labor with with the Lord for you. You know, one of the things, even as Will's question is about marriage, is you know I, I see not just in Grace Life, but you know, talking to the other pastors, you know, just an enormous amount of strife in marriages that require an, a, a, an exceptional amount of time in counseling. I was just talking to one of the pastors at Elder Prayer who said, on top of having just been subpoenaed to give. Uh, testimony in a court case because of a divorce. He's also on Christmas night was at somebody's house and had to bring people to the police because of marital disputes and things. And, you know, that kind of stuff is happening beneath the surface. And, and it's happening in less severe ways as well, just in the way that we relate to one another, especially as husband and wife. And so I I would just say, uh, if you are married, you know, to, to just, to just be jealous, to pursue what, what Will's asking about as husbands in Ephesians 5 and as wives on the other side as respectful and submissive wives and I may even take some time sermon wise to, to focus on on that in the, in the coming weeks but if you're not married I, I want you to get married um, I mean that all of you all ages there there are people there are people who you know ought to be um, there, there, let's say it this way. Let's, say, let's be frank. There are people in this room whom I would not recommend someone marry. <laughs> Seriously. Why? Spiritual maturity, you know, um, re- reasonableness, entreatableness, um, mercifulness, uh, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, j- job issues, you know, ability to provide even physically for others. I don't want you to be somebody that I can't recommend that somebody be interested in, right? I want you all to be of such a spiritual maturity and ordering your lives well that you would be a woman who would be, it would be a delight to pursue and a man whom it would be a delight uh, to, for a woman to be led by. And, uh, I, you know, I think that there's, there's strength in a church when the marriages are healthy and strong. And uh, I know that that is, is painful for some to hear. It's not for everybody. Some really are, you know, gifted to be single. Some in the providence of God won't be, be married. I'm not saying you're a second-class Christian for that. I'm just saying, you know, uh, if, if there are reasons why your pastor might not recommend you to be married to somebody, get rid of those reasons, you know. Uh, press on in spiritual maturity so that uh, that would be a, a joyful, yeah, we've got to get this guy married because he's, he's, he's ready, you know, he's, he's ready, Where, where's the lady? We've got to get this woman married because she's great, where's the guy to come in? You know what I mean? That's, that's what we want, and we do that, we've done that. I want to do it more. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 so, and then once you're married, you know, to steward that gift as precious as it is, and, and to be constantly yielding and forgiving and serving and laying life down, you know, for the other so that we tell the truth about the gospel in the way that we relate to one another. Great. Well, with that, let's pray. 
Gracious God, we thank you again for the many blessings you give us here at Grace Church. Thank you for Pastor Mike, Pastor Phil, just their faithful leadership. And thank you for Pastor John and, and even setting that course even for these men. Lord, thank you for their faithfulness to your word. Thankful, thank you for their faithfulness to shepherd us as their sheep. And uh, Father God, I pray that we would be faithful, obedient sheep that would listen to the to the voice of your word through these faithful men, that we would be obedient, that we would love you more this next year, that we would desire Christ more and more, and uh, Lord, that we would take these things to heart, and uh, Lord, really make them our convictions and not just the convictions of our pastors. And Lord, we just ask all these things in your name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.